Today I wanted to talk with you uh, through some things about Exodus. For those of you who are participating in our, in our Bible reading challenge, um, I wanted to just highlight a few things because I think these are important for us as a church to see. And <laughs> I think that uh, this is where the story basically ends for a little bit when you get to the end of Exodus, when you get into Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It gets a little harsh and it gets a little difficult to read. So I want to encourage you, buckle up, hold tight, keep, keep, you know, keep going, all right? Because it gets, we get back into the prophets and things get easier to understand. But I want to encourage you uh, to stay the course. But Exodus, my goodness, how many of you loved Exodus? What a fantastic book. But the book of Exodus makes for a very perfect movie script. I don't know if you've noticed. That's why I wanted to talk to you about Exodus, the answer to our modern culture. You go, well, the Bible is outdated. It's archaic. It's no longer relevant. Really? Well, we have to look into scriptures, see what it really says, and not what Hollywood says it says, but what the Bible really says in order to see if it's outdated. But you will see today that it's not. Think about this, okay? If you're going to look for a movie script, you're going to look for a script that has the right characters in place. <clears throat> you have an underdog here with this script in Exodus. This underdog leader by the name Moses was born into a slave nation. But like a true hero, this underdog leader goes and he confronts the world's most powerful man, Pharaoh. This underdog leader turns the river into blood. He calls down hail. He calls in frogs to invade. He calls uh, flies, lice, and the plagues to plague the most prosperous nation, the most powerful nation on the planet at the time. Now, God uses this underdog leader to miraculously divide a big body of water so that three million Jews can escape this powerful nation that was pursuing them and then eventually drowns their entire mighty military. Now, just that right there that you heard, what a fantastic script for a movie, right? And that's only the beginning of the story. <clears throat> no wonder people, or Hollywood, you know, they came out with the Ten Commandments, 1956. Moses, if you remember that. And then they came out with the Prince of Egypt. Now, can anybody remember when that came out? <laughs> 1998. <laughs> We're old, everybody. <laughs> 1998. It feels like last year. And then, of course, they came out with Exodus, Gods and Kings, uh, played by Russell Crowe in 2014. What a disaster. But, oh yeah, God flooded the world because we wouldn't care for, the, we wouldn't care for nature. Apparently, that's what they thought the book of Exodus was all about. Well, the truth is, Hollywood can only make movies based on true stories, but we'll never be able to tell the true story that Exodus is actually really all about because it is too offensive to this, com this current day and age. It is simply too much of a correction. It is too much of a rebuke, a judgment, and a condemnation on our current culture. So it turns out that what we need in our present day and age is, in fact, an unvarnished teaching from the book of Exodus because it addresses our affinity towards individualism. 
It addresses our push towards secularism, towards humanism, towards paganism. It identifies the hypocrisy of socialism. The list goes on and on and on. But every, every aberrant, alien, godless ideology is crushed if you actually read through the book of Exodus the way it ought to be read. So let's take a peek into what Exodus really teaches. We see that throughout the book of Exodus, God focus, or God's focus is His glory, not Israel's comfort. If you look at the church today, you would assume that to be the other way around. You would assume that man is elevated and God is there to make his life better. This simple concept right here strikes a blow at today's humanistic mindset and ideologies. Where modern culture views man as valuable free agent who gets to do everything he dreams of in this life. While God is treated more like his servant and God is required. As a matter of fact, he must give every man all the grace he needs, all the mercy he needs, all the protection he needs, all the provision he needs, all the love he get, needs, and all the care man needs. And the moment God doesn't do that, you will find in, in the newspapers, where was God? Where was God when that earthquake happened last week? Where was God at 9-11? Where was God when the floods hit down south? Well, that is a humanistic ideology that has permeated the minds of this culture. God is, in fact, supposed to be loving. How dare he not love? <laughs> you go, well, he did love. No, he wiped out a whole world with a flood. Yeah, I know, he loved. He loved righteousness. He loved the righteous. This seems impossible, as a matter of fact, that God calls this love, but yet it is. So on the contrary, throughout Exodus, we see that God exercises his powers. God puts his power on display in Exodus. And uh, he puts his glory on display because the first thing we see in, in Exodus that I want to highlight is the fact that God's focus is his glory, not Israel's comfort, Israel's convenience, but his glory. So we see throughout Exodus that God exercises his powers, but he exercises his power over creation. He exercises his power over the weather. Remember the hail that fell during the plagues? He exercises his power over rulers like Pharaoh, the greatest, then the most powerful ruler of the day. He exercises his power over all the Egyptians, people, in nations. And he does all of that in order to what? Put his glory on display, as I mentioned. So what I want to do is I want to show you three examples of where God put his power on display in order to show his greatness, His glory, and who, re who He really is. The first is that God shows His power and authority by using the foolish things of this world. He uses the foolish things of this world. For instance, somebody like Moses. <laughs> you see, God identifies the shepherd who has been running for his life because he murdered somebody, if you remember the story. 
God then calls this shepherd to see, who seems to have a problem speaking. He calls him to deliver three million Jews, three million Israelites from an oppressive regime headed up by this most powerful man of the world, Pharaoh. And this seems impossible to the logical mind, but God loves to show his power by using the most unlikely person to do the most unthinkable thing. That way he gets all the glory. Somebody goes, oh no. Well, did God do all of that? I mean, those 10 plagues. Imagine the last plague. The death of the firstborn. Wow. That is so cruel, says every humanist. That is so unthinkably cruel and evil of God. Just so that his glory can be displayed. All of that just for his glory. I'll use a term that often comes up. It hasn't only come up once, but many times people go, what a narcissist. You mean to say that he created everything for his glory? Only a narcissist could do that. Man, God is so self-serving. It's all about me, 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 no other gods, me only. <laughs> you know, of course, he must be a self-centered, egotistical narcissist. How many of you have ever heard that culture, people saying that? I can remember Oprah Winfrey saying, I just... When I heard that God was jealous, I'm like, I'm out. Do you remember that? Yeah. I'm out. I'm no longer serving him. I'm serving a God greater than him who is not jealous. Mm -hmm. I know. So it's, here's jealous God, the creator, and here is perfect Oprah. <laughs> Never jealous. I wonder what would happen if, is it Stedford? Stanford? What's his name? Stedman? <laughs> I, I knew it was going to come to mind. <laughs> I wonder what happens when, when uh, he walks away with, his, with, a, pretty with a pretty waitress or, or secretary. No jealousy, huh? No, actually it's love that justifies jealousy in the way that God is jealous. God cannot sin. He's perfect. And when he's jealous, it's a justifiable jealousy because of his overwhelming love. So is God an egomaniac? Well, let me ask you. Would a narcissist go and love his enemy in such a way that he would actually completely give up all that he had in order to save those who hated him? Would a narcissist do what he does for the benefit of others? Well, no, of course not. Didn't Jesus just do that? Didn't God just do that? No, he's the exact opposite of an egotistical narcissist. But why must we see his glory and live for his glory? Because that is, God knows, that is the only possible way to undo the sin that you and I got ourselves into. Because as we see him, we will be as he is, free, perfect, holy, righteous. That's what's going to happen, the Bible says, right? When we see him, we will be as he is. The more you see God, the more you change. And God knows. The more you see him, the more you change. Therefore, he is willing to reveal his glory, not for his own sake, but for ours. So we can undo, or the sin in us can be undone by looking into his perfection. So no, actually, he's the exact opposite of what these people accuse him of. So we see that God shows his power and authority by using the foolish things of the world. 
like a Moses. A stutterer, doesn't speak fluently. He has murder in his background. He's a running, he's a runaway shepherd taking care of sheep in the back of a desert. But God uses him to do the unthinkable. And so God, his glory and his ability is displayed for all to see. Secondly, we see that God shows his power over false gods, the false gods of Egypt. You see, in a time, our time, where America claims to no longer be a Christian nation, I was in a pastor's meeting this past week, and I, and, uh, I mentioned, like, aren't we blessed that America was founded upon Judeo-Christian principles and was a Christian nation, and of course, you have to have somebody with a PhD immediately say, excuse me, sir, that's not true. We, we have never been a Christian nation. I'm like, well, haven't you seen Moses etched into some of the most powerful uh, buildings in D.C.? Like, how are we not connected to what God showed us in Exodus? Of course we are. So we see in a time where America claims to no longer be a Christian nation or everybody claims their own truth. Or you see polytheism is on the rise. You see coexist is on bumper stickers everywhere. However, the book of Exodus, on the other hand, stands as a reminder that God is completely unapologetic about his feelings about false gods, his feelings and thoughts about idol worship, and about heretical doctrines in churches. You don't have to defend God. He draws very clear lines. Very unapologetically so. Throughout scriptures. And we see it in such a perfect picture. Back in Exodus. Where the most powerful nation. With the, great, most, the powerful man in all the world. Pharaoh. God just says. I'm drawing lines. <laughs> You see, at the time of Moses, the world worshipped many gods. In other words, they practiced polytheism. That's what it's called. And they would come up with gods connected to different bodies in the created order. And that is really what pagan worship is all about. I'll give you a couple of things they believe in. Pagans believe that everyone is considered to be a part of Mother Earth or the universe. You're a part of the universe. You're a stardust. You're made of dust. You're a part of the earth. Uh, they believe divinity reveals itself in every facet of this world. Everything that was created, the created order, reveals the divine. They don't really believe that there's a person God. God doesn't have a personality. They believe that the creation is God as a whole. In other words, the sun, the moon, the rivers, the weather, rocks, everything in nature, etc., is the divine, and we are basically an extension thereof. Every being, every man and every animal, therefore, is a derivative of the divine. In other words, we are part of God, the pagan says, and that would mean every one of us is corporately really one, and that's why you will find so many people shouting, all we need to do is is we need to be there for one another. We need to stick together. We can do this together. <laughs> I remember when COVID came, 
we were just like, you know, we can make it when we, if we stick together. If we, to, in what way? In what way do you make it when you stick together during the flu season? I have no idea. I thought you wanted us to be separate. <laughs> Six feet together. <laughs> Six feet apart together. Now, in, in, back in the day, they would gather these gods to themselves, including the sun god. I mean, everything had a god, right? The sun god, the moon god, the god of the Nile, the god of the frogs, the god of the lice, the fleas. These gods were called nature gods, nature gods. And when God sent the plagues, however, watch this. When God sends the plagues, guess how, guess how he does this? Um, he overthrew the nature god with the plagues. But he did so with nature itself. <laughs> it's like, oh, I thought nature was God. Apparently, he's turned on himself. When God sent these plagues, he showed that the nature gods were subject to the nature they were supposed to be God over. And he did so by using elements of his creation, proving that really they were non-existent. Now, if you remember the plagues, God caused water to be turned into blood. Number one, and number two, he caused frogs to invade their entire world everywhere. He caused lice to invade everywhere, then flies to invade everywhere. Number five, all the livestock to die from disease. No God to save them from that. Number six, he caused them to become ill with boils. God, no God to save them themselves. He caused hail to destroy their land, destroy their crops. Locusts came, destroyed their crop. Darkness fell on the land. And then here's one they didn't have a God for. The death of the firstborn. That's the only one they didn't have a God for. And here we see introduced for the very first time the creator God who is not part of creation itself. In a pagan's mind, God is part of the universe. Moses comes... He introduces the great I am who is not part of creation. He sits above creation, the one, the creation he himself created all by himself. He, he introduces this God to Pharaoh as the great I am, the eternal self-existing God. He doesn't need nature to exist. He exists before nature from eternity past to eternity future. The God who is not part of the creation, but sits above it and outside of it. The God who is one true God, not part of many different false gods. The God who will have mercy upon whom he chooses to have mercy. And he will have compassion on whom he chooses to have compassion. Because this God does as he pleases according to his own wisdom and counsel. Exodus 33 verse 19. No man can push away the hand of God. Not even Pharaoh. This is the very first time in human history where monotheism is introduced. In other words, you have polytheism, we have many gods, and then you have monotheism, we have one God. In, De in Deuteronomy 6 verse 4, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He's a person. He experiences anger. He experiences joy. He is joy. He is peace. He has wrath. He is just. And as God destroyed every one of those nature gods in Egypt, 
So he also destroys every one of our idols today, every one of our false gods, every one of our heretical doctrines we deal with today. Now you might say, well, well I, don't have, I don't have a statue. I don't have a statue I bow to. Well, that's not necessarily what a false god is. Here's, here's a definition for you, a working definition. Are you ready? Of a false god. A false god is when you have anything, anything that exists for its own purpose alone. Anything that exists for its own purpose alone. I'll give you an example. If you, if you have an education, now that's one of the things I love about classical Christian education. It actually teaches how math glorifies God. Let's go to the next subject. It teaches how science ultimately glorifies God. Well, if you are, if you are studying science as a means and an ends to itself, in other words, it stops with itself and it's for self, but it doesn't end up glorifying God. If it, if it is a subject, it's a means and an end unto itself, but it doesn't end up glorifying God, that is an idol. Why do you think there are so many atheist scientists? <laughs> Education. I mean, there's a, anything can be an anything can be um, you know an idol. Let's say, for instance, finances. If it's a means and an ends unto its own, unto itself, and it has no purpose but for itself, it's an idol unless it becomes purposeful unto God. You let's go talents if a talent is unto itself this is why Hollywood's so destroyed if uh, you you can hardly go through there without ending up completely insane isn't this true which sane parent tries to get their child involved with Hollywood who wondered about that well if 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 gifts talents are unto themselves alone serving only self but not ultimately serving God, it's, it's an idol. Anything that doesn't end up glorifying God is in fact an idol. Because you have put that thing before God. And here we see that God destroyed every single nature God in Egypt. He destroys every single idol, false God, and therefore heretical doctrines we may have today. In our world. That's why, you know, um, I think that as a minister, by the way, the Bible says, Ye are a royal priesthood. Ye are the royal priesthood. Not just me. I'm not the only minister in this room. Every one of you believers, you're a minister, right? And uh, uh, it's really time for the church to be very clear on this message that your life is to glorify God. You are to live for God, you are not to add Jesus to your life. And he becomes a means to your end. <laughs> he, he now exists so your life can be comfortable, so your life can be more prosperous, so your life can be easier. That's not, that's not what this is about. Evidently not so, is it? I mean, there's, there are the Israelites. <laughs> you know, they just spent 400 years as slaves. And here God is glorified. Plans coming together. Yeah, but those poor people were in, yeah, God's plan has come together. All things are working out together for the good because they have been called to God's purposes. Number three, 
How is God's glory placed, put on display? Well, God's dis God displayed His sovereignty over world rulers and nations when He hardened Pharaoh's heart over and over and over again. Exodus 4 verse 21, I'll give you one example. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I, God, will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will not let the people go. This was God's plan before Moses even got there. God continues to harden Pharaoh's heart over and over again. But this was so that he could display his glory by revealing his justice. How does he reveal his justice? Or how does he receive glory by revealing his justice after hardening Pharaoh's heart? Well, he hardened Pharaoh's heart to show what a stubborn person looks like. And then what he does is he pours these ten plagues on Pharaoh to prove that he's a just God in the face of stubborn people. You go, well, that doesn't make sense. That's what God did. And when you come to a place in the Bible where you go like, well, I, that's not right. Well, it's because you don't understand it, at least not in full yet. So whether it be God's sovereignty and rule over the elements, over nature, over every false god, over nations, over rulers like Pharaoh. His purposes will stand. He will do whatever he wants with his own creation. And our modern world hates that idea. We have entered individualism. We entered it 200 years ago. Individualism. We have gone through secularism. Humanism, we're entering paganism, and I'll tell you what, there's nothing a secular humanist and a paganist hates more than learning that there is a God, and He does whatever He wishes, He rules, and there's nothing you can do about it. So while our current culture is okay with every individual living out their own subjective truth, and our culture is okay with the idea that all things are relative. There is no ultimate truth. There is no ultimate authority. They're okay with religious plurality. God makes it clear in Exodus that every false God and every false belief will eventually bow its knee to the name of Jesus. Philippians 2 verse 9 through 11 says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. At the name of who? We Jesus, every Nation. knee should bow in heaven and on earth, not Please just in heaven, but in heaven and on earth, and then under the earth. And every we tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Sunday Lord experience. to the glory of God the For Father. More information, visit so God displays his sovereignty and his, and his rule .tv. Thank you over world rulers and nations and people groups. Then we see number four, God displayed his glory when he brought Pharaoh to justice. You see, when, when God judges, this is interesting. Watch this. When God judges evildoers like he did Pharaoh and his army, uh, you will see how moviegoers cheer and they clap when God drowns Pharaoh's armies in the Red Sea. I mean, it's just a glorious moment, you know. Here's the villain, Pharaoh, and his minions, his armies. And here's God's chosen people. And they're running for their lives. And this army is coming after them. And God just shuts the Red Sea and drowns them all. And everybody's like, that is awesome. Don't you feel that? I mean, it's such a victory, isn't it? 
That is an amazing thing. So yes, God's glory is displayed when Pharaoh is brought to justice. When a wicked man is brought to justice by God, everybody rejoices. In other words, people rejoice or they glorify God when, when God rewards the good and punishes the evil. But what do you think, here's a question for you, what do you think is the single biggest reason people reject God? Why do they reject believing in God? Like, I'm not going to believe in Him. Now, there are many, many, um, you know, they've, surveyed this up and down the Western world, and here's the answer. It's there's too much injustice in this world. There's too much wickedness, and there's so much evil in this world. I reject the call to put my faith in God. If Because if God was good, why all the wickedness? Is God all-powerful? Yes. Well, then he should have done something about all this wickedness, right? All this evil. Why is he not doing anything? Maybe it's because he's not all-powerful. But apparently he is all-powerful. Well, then if he is all-powerful and he just allows all the wickedness to happen, well, then evidently he's not good. He's either not good or he's he's not powerful. One of the two. So I'm not going to believe in him. It doesn't make sense to me. That's the reason people won't believe in him. But ironically speaking, though, watch this. There's a second reason why people reject the creator God. They reject him because they, don't, they won't accept him as judge over themselves. Who's he to judge me? They're uncomfortable with being told that God is their personal judge. So they, are, they, they won't believe in him because he's not judging the world for their wickedness. And they won't believe in him because they reject the idea that he's going to be their judge. So people reject God because they believe he does not sufficiently judge evils of the world, but they also reject him at the same time because, and they slander him because they claim who's he to judge them. I'm a good person. Who's he to point a finger at me? So the actual reason they reject him as judge over their own lives is because they simply just, they simply believe that they're only good. There's no evil in them and there's no wickedness in them. So really the problem here is that they don't view themselves the right way. And I dare to say that the church is one of the reasons why people have a problem viewing themselves for who they truly are. Because at church is what you were told, at both church and Starbucks, you're told how wonderful you are. (laughs) There's no such doctrine as total depravity in the church, no. People go, if God is good, why doesn't he destroy and erase all wickedness from e- and evil from the world? Why doesn't he do it? Well, he actually did it. He did it one time. Do you remember? Back in Noah's time, the world was so wicked, he just destroyed everybody. 
But think it through before you allow these thoughts to run through your mind, folks. Next time somebody tells you, well, why doesn't God, if He's good and almighty, why doesn't He take care of wickedness? Well, if He was going to destroy all wickedness and all evil in this world, He would have to destroy you too. Oh, suddenly I changed my mind. Actually, He is a good God, after all. <laughs> yes, He is. He's patient, which means He's good. He's gracious, which means He's good. He's merciful, which means He's good. He's given you another day. He's given an evil man another day to repent. How dare he give that evil man another day to? That man must die. Well, so must you, actually. <laughs> Do you remember the saying? That the only thing you brought to salvation is your sin that made it necessary. You didn't do anything. You just came with your sin, and God came with his righteousness and saved you. Because he's good, he's gracious, he's merciful, and he's loving. But even so, we see that God is glorified in the face of wickedness, in the face of Pharaoh. Because God is a just God. Every single sin, every single transgression, every single wickedness will be brought to justice either in Christ at the cross or in hell forever. But God is a just God and every single spiritual crime will be paid for in Christ or in hell. How is it paid in Christ? If you put your faith in Christ, your sins are swallowed up in the crucifixion. Your sins are swallowed up in that sacrifice. Your sins are being punished on the cross. And you receive God's righteousness because you put your faith in Christ. But for those who refuse to do that, this is where the problem comes in. You're facing a just judge, a good judge. Why is God good? Because he's a good judge. He doesn't take bribes. He doesn't turn a blind eye to sin and wickedness. No, he, uh, he makes sure every evil, every wickedness, every sin is dealt with. And you have an opportunity to allow your sins to be dealt with on the cross in Christ instead of having to deal with it yourself. So our conclusion here is God, God's focus throughout Exodus is the display of his own glory. All of that happened. <laughs> so God's glory could be put on display. All of that happened so we could see he is one God. He is outside of nature. He sits above the creation. He shows that Nature overrides the gods they say is over nature. I mean, he's, it's almost funny how God does that. And this is true for us individually. You see, God's glory in our lives are more important than our comfort. It's more important that God be glorified. It's more important that he be glorified versus you being comfortable. If we do not live for his glory, our lives are wasted. Here is a, another principle the book of Exodus um, portrays that Hollywood does not. The book of Exodus proves that even though many people believe that man's greatest yearning is for freedom, the book of Exodus proves that it's simply not true. You know, like, I mean, movies are made out of this, books are made out of this, 
But do you know that you judge or people in general judge others according to what they have done while they judge themselves based on their intentions, right? They judge others by their actions. They judge themselves by their in intentions. Well, my intention was good. I know I have bad actions, but I'm a good person because my intentions are good. You are a bad person because your actions are bad. <laughs> you see, the hypocrisy of the age. In Exodus 16, verse 3, we see, in the, it says, And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. These people, now check this out, okay? These people were slaves for 400 years. God sends Moses. He brings the plagues down on Pharaoh. Pharaoh lets them go. They go through the Red Sea. The Red Sea drowns the whole entire army of Pharaoh. And they walk free, free as a bird into the desert. And then suddenly, oh, if God only allowed us to rather continue to live until we died in Egypt... Why did I come here to die? I'd rather die there. Under slavery, that's where I want to be. Which is what they said. Verse 3. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of God in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots, and ate bread, of the f bread to the full. For you have brought us into this wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. You're so cruel. I want to be back in slavery. See, what's true about well, Exodus is really just outlining uh, man's hypocrisy, man's blind eyes about himself and about God. The Israelites longed to return back to Egypt, not because there was a lot of food there. There wasn't, if you remember. But they longed to go back there because as slaves, they did not have to provide for themselves. It is a myth that people yearn most for freedom. Now, of course, they want to be free to do whatever they want. But what they want more than freedom is they don't want to be responsible. And that's the blessing of, of, let's say, communism. It's like you don't have to be responsible for nothing. My, li my life is horrible and it's all your fault. <laughs> And we're all equal, equally poor, equally hungry. Most people prefer to be taken care of, even if it's at the expense of their own personal freedoms. This is true. You know it's true. Because that's how people vote. That is why people almost everywhere in the world prefer a big state to a limited one. You know that America was the first one that came out with the idea of the American, the American experience was, or experiment, excuse me, was that, hey, let's have a small government. That's what they ran away from, remember? Yeah. Let's have a small government. We need small, small government so people can be free. Well, it's interesting that they had that idea because guess where they got it? You can go read it on the Liberty Bell. They got it right out of Exodus and Leviticus. They got it out of the Torah, the Bible, the scriptures. But most people prefer to be taken care of instead, even if it means they lose their own freedoms. And that is why people almost everywhere in the world prefer a big state to a limited one. You see, Exodus is, not, it is the book for this generation. Hollywood just doesn't have the ability to say what it's saying. <laughs> you know. There's another way, by the way, there's another way in which God displays His glory in Exodus. 
and that is by painting pictures of who the coming deliverer was going to be. Painting pictures of the coming Messiah, the coming Christ. Who is he? What is he like? And what is he going to do? John 5 verse 46 says, For if you believed Moses, watch this, you would believe me. Who said that? Jesus. If you believed Moses in Exodus, you would believe me. Why? Because when he wrote, he wrote about me. <laughs> Everything that happened back there was really about him. You know, I'm not going to do this right now, but do you realize that Moses is like a perfect picture? Portrait of Jesus. Jesus is the greater Moses. I won't go through it all, but they were both shepherds. They're both out of Egypt. Remember, Jesus, was from, Jesus moved to Egypt. They both were born escaping murdering of the children. Moses delivers God's chosen people. Jesus delivers God's chosen. Every single thing about them actually is the same. But how does Moses write about Jesus? Number one, you see, when he wrote about Jesus, we see that Jesus is the real sacrificial lamb in the final plague. Now, you know how this happened? The tenth plague came. God said, all right, Moses, tell them I'm going to kill all the firstborn across the whole land. And the, and the only way for this angel of death to pass over you is to take what? A lamb. What kind of lamb? A male lamb. How so? What must he, what, what other attributes? He must be perfect. Without blemish, take this lamb, slaughter him, take the blood of that lamb, put it on the doorpost, put it on your house, and the angel of death will pass over, that's where we get Passover from, will pass over your house. Oh, hi, sorry. I have never heard it do that. <laughs> Dave and Linda gave me this. This is all Dave's fault. Broke the anointing, brother. Here is Passover. That's where Passover came from. And uh, guess who was the first? Guess who was the firstborn who died in this family of God? Jesus. So that blood was a picture of the coming perfect Lamb of God, the firstborn from the dead in God's family, and that is Jesus himself. What a perfect, perfect picture. How else do we see Moses writing about Jesus? Of course, I'm just pointing out two or three issues here, but it's throughout the book. We see Jesus is, in fact, the real manna from heaven. He is the real manna from heaven. When the Israelites were going through the desert, they were complaining. They needed food. And God rained manna down day after day after day after day. Then it came to a point where they wanted something different. However, God, cho God choosing bread to sustain them was not random. Manna was all the while in the knowledge of God, the wisdom of God, the providence of God. It had to be bread. God chose it to be bread because 2,000 years later in a crowd of 5,000 people gathered to hear Jesus teach. 
It was then that Jesus took the five loaves and the two fish from a boy and miraculously multiplied them into enough food to feed everyone. And there was food left, just like there was manna left. Jesus was, in fact, the true bread from heaven that satisfied and sustained. We see also number three, another picture of Christ in Exodus is the rock that produced water. In 1 Corinthians 10, 14, Paul says something about that. He says, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. You see what happened here? <clears throat> the children of Israel were wandering through the desert, and they became thirsty, and they said, Moses, what are we going to do? We have no water. And then God said to Moses, I will stand over here by the rock. I want you to strike it with the rod. And Moses went over there, and he struck the rock with the rod. What is that a picture of? Who's the rock? Jesus. Why is the rock struck? It's a picture of the crucifixion. How God was standing there overseeing his own son struck and crushed. So that his chosen people could drink from him, be sustained, and have life. Then we see it happen a second time where the children of Israel were thirsty and, and Moses had a bit of an anger problem, which is the thing that got him, um, prevented him from entering God's promised land. But Moses got angry at the people. He walked over to the rock. God says, now speak to the rock. The rock got struck once. Now speak to it the second time and water will come out. Moses goes over there and he just smites that rock out of anger. Water did come out. But God said, you misrepresented me. You see, Jesus was crucified once for all time. Jesus was struck once for all time. He is not to be crucified over and over and over again. As if, because, as if the first time wasn't sufficient. If you want to... If you want to assume that more needs to be done, what you are saying is what he did wasn't enough, at least not for you. You go, Jacques, you don't know me. <laughs> uh, I am so bad. Jesus needs to be crucified every single day for me. Well, that's, that's just you limiting and trivializing the actual price that was paid for you. No, what Jesus did <clears throat> on the cross was sufficient for you for all eternity. This is why the gospel is such great news. What Jesus did for you 2,000 years ago is sufficient. It is enough. It is completed. He said it is finished. You don't need another God. You don't need to first become perfect. You don't need to go through purgatory. You don't need anything else. Because if you believe that you do, you are trivializing what he did. And that is a sin. Peter did that. Peter did that. When the Gentiles wanted to become Christians, he said, well, first become a Jew. Get circumcised, and then you can come here. That plus Christ equals Christian. And Paul said, cursed with that message. 
And then he repeated, let that man be cursed who preaches that message. You add nothing to the message of Christ. You bring nothing to the table except your sin that made his sacrifice necessary. That's all you bring. That's why Christianity is the, is the only religion where God takes the initiative to come and save you while you were yet his enemy. How does he do that? He takes out the stony heart. He puts in a heart of flesh. What does that mean? He takes out your old nature that is, that is against him, that is an enemy of his. He puts in a new nature that now loves him and says, God, I need you. I, where else are you going to take your unresolved guilt? Somebody goes, oh, I don't have guilt. Well, you just lied, and now you're guilty. <laughs> okay. Every single one of us have guilt. My question is, when you breathe your lost, when you lie on that bed, when you are about to leave this earth, where are you going to take your unresolved guilt? You go, oh, no, you know, I'm good enough. Well, that's pride, and that too makes you guilty of sin. We're in checkmate. We have nowhere to go but Christ. We have nowhere to go but Christ. You don't need anything else but Christ's work on the cross to save you eternally because Christ is enough. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we pray. That as we look to your scriptures, Lord, that we will see the perfection in him. Help us understand God. Lydia was a woman who worked with purple linen. She made clothes. She was simple. And as she was listening to the Apostle Paul, God, you said that you came and opened her mind. Miraculously opened her mind. Miraculously opened her heart. So she was able to not just understand, but she was able to give herself to what Paul was preaching. Without you opening up the eyes of the blind, God, they would blind forever. Without you lifting the veil from the mind and the heart, they will never see. But I pray, God, that that miracle takes place. Oh, God, that you will do a brand new work, birthing a brand new creature with a brand new heart. In Jesus' name, there's nothing we can do but trust in you that your Holy Spirit will birth people from above. And that's what we're believing for. That's what we're hoping for. And that's what we're praying for. May you be glorified in everything, Father God. May you be glorified in the good times and the bad times, in hardships or times of ease. May you be glorified in when, you, when, when justice is brought upon this earth. May you be glorified in all things in the face of wickedness. Your name be lifted high. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Amen. I hope you got something out of the word today.